You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. Now as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we must recall that we're in a section where Paul is still hashing out, detailing, teaching the Corinthian church about spiritual gifts. And he took time in the midst of that talk to talk to them about love, the importance of love, that you can have all these gifts, but if you don't have love, then it's really not worthwhile. So he goes on to say in chapter 14, pursue love. You know, that's what we must do. We must pursue love. Uh, That word pursue is often translated persecute. So you can't persecute love, obviously, but the idea is chase it down. That's what someone who's being persecuted is uh, under. They're being chased. You know, they're being pursued. So pursue love. Paul Paul got that concept. So we're we're to chase it out. We're We're to really aggressively and intentionally make our lives about loving specifically other believers, but human beings in general. And earnestly, verse 1, desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So pursue love, but definitely desire the spiritual gifts. Let them be a part of your life. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, I mentioned in the previous teaching that I was going to talk about the gift of tongues and prophecy in chapter 14, and that's because Paul expands on both of those gifts uh, here in this chapter, including another gift, the gift of interpretation. So tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. Let's see what Paul says. He says, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So what Paul is saying here is a a few different things. One is, the, the one who speaks in tongues, verse 2, speaks not to men, but to God. So the gift of tongues is the gift of a prayer language to God that God can understand that man, including the speaker, cannot understand. You know, all the way back in the garden, Adam's sin broke his fellowship with God, and fellowship, of course, has been restored through the blood of Jesus, but still there are times where our words aren't enough. And so this gift of tongues is a prayer gift that a human can use to talk, to commune with God. That God understands, it is driven by the Spirit. And the gift of tongues, we should also notice, because it's a prayer language to God, we should notice it is not a voice to man. This is man to God, not man to man or God to man. And this is important because sometimes in some circles you'll hear an interpretation of tongues or a supposed interpretation of tongues. And it sounds like, in the interpretation, a message from God to man. But that's not the way the gift of tongues works. It is a language from man to, or from humans to God. And then he talks about the one who prophesies. Uh, Notice that he says that his words are understood. There's no confusion. And three things happen. Upbuilding. 
encouragement and consolation. So here you have the idea of a builder. They're building a person's life or building up the church or edifying them. Or a coach, you know, spurring someone on. Or comfort, uh, like a doctor, you know, shoring them up, bringing healing into their lives. Now, none of these words necessarily have to be predictive. That's often what we think of prophecy. We think it has to be predictive, but they are timely. You know, they're fitly spoken words. You know, pleasant words at a beautiful and right time. There's just a power behind them. They might be predictive, but they don't have to be. We learn at the end of this chapter we need to test prophecies. We should not, First Thessalonians 5 verse 20, despise prophecies. So they can be predictive in nature, but they don't necessarily have to be. And the one speaking in tongues builds up himself, Paul said in verse 4. But the one who speaks in the gift of prophecy builds up the church. Now he goes on with this to say in verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Here what he's saying is that the speaker you know, of the gift of tongues it should not be used in public unless there's someone who has a gift of interpretation. So that might be the speaker themselves, potentially, or another person in the room that God will give that insight to. Now, sometimes you just have to try this out. You're in a prayer meeting or you know, a small gathering of believers and somebody speaks out in a tongue. It's just good to wait. Hey, let's see. Is God going to give us the interpretation? If not, then no more speaking in tongues in that moment. Just keep it private as a private language. But if interpretation is there, then Paul says, look, that's good. You know, then then you can be encouraged by the content of the prayer that is fueled by the Spirit to God. And uh, this has happened to me a couple of times where in my own prayer life and language, I've been able to have an interpretation. Usually it's just by myself because that's you know, predominantly where I practiced the gift of tongues. But a couple of times it's happened with other people, you know, where I've received a tongue, felt like God gave me the faith to believe that he would give me the interpretation of it, and he did. Now, brothers, verse 6, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for the battle? So with you yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So here Paul uses these different analogies, you know, music, a bugle, foreign language, shouting to the ocean, to communicate that what we want inside the gatherings are distinct, clear, meaningful, understandable words. The gift of tongues is not that. It's indistinct, it's unclear, it means nothing to us like a foreign language. 
and doesn't make any impact like speaking into the air. So, you know, Paul said, you know, basically that's why the interpretation is so necessary if it's ever spoken around other believers. So he says in verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. So the, the Corinthians did have a problem. It seemed like they were really trying to excel for their own personal edification. And I just would remind you with this chapter especially of the backdrop of this whole letter. The Corinthian church was wild in a lot of ways, unruly. And so Paul really had to communicate to them, hey, don't use your spiritual gifts for your own personal edification. Use them for the public building up edification of the church. Love, again, chapter 13 is the key. Therefore, verse 13, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, Paul said. What am I to do? Okay, so Paul's asking the question, you know, what should I do? If I, if I have the gift of tongues, you know, what should I do? Because when I use it, my mind doesn't know what I'm praying. But if I speak it, then, you know, what, what should, it's not helping anybody, so what should I do? Here's what Paul decided, and it works for me. He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So he says, oh, I'm going to do both. You know, uh, the implication is, personally, I'm going to pray and sing with the spirit. And then out loud, I'm going to use and pray with my mind intelligibly and sing with my mind intelligibly. Otherwise, verse 16, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, you know, that's you might be thanking God with the gift of tongues, but the other person, he said, is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He prayed a lot. He was a prayer machine. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So that, that was Paul's decision. And like I said, it, it works for me. I, I believe that you want clarity and uh, an intelligible voice in public, and then the prayer language can be used by God personally and privately. Brothers, verse 20, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, and here he goes all the way back to Isaiah 28, by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, this is a really fascinating reference that Paul uses from Isaiah 28. The connection is he's talking about tongues and an unintelligible language and everything, and he quotes from Isaiah, who was not prophesying about the gift of tongues. He was prophesying about God's judgment upon northern Israel in the form of the Assyrian people. And that they would come, and even when they came, the people in Israel who had not listened to God previously would not be able to listen to the Assyrians, not understand them, and would still not listen to God in the midst of that. So they would disobey God's revealed word, and they'd also, you know, somehow disobey the Assyrian 
spoken word. The question is, how does this tie in to you know, the passage that's in front of us right now? It seems like maybe Paul is giving them an example of another time that tongues benefited nobody. I don't know that that's what was happening in his mind, but it's a guess that some people make. He goes on to say, thus, tongues are a sign. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. All right, so tongues, a sign for unbelievers. Prophecy, a sign for believers. But then, get this, he goes on to say, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's a beautiful response. I think we'd all root for that. But that is the response that comes when a person is hit, a non-believer is hit with the prophetic gift. But Paul starts out by saying that tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. So, it feels a little muddy to us at our first reading of this. Tongues is mentioned in verse 22 as a sign to non-believers, but a stumbling block to them in verse 23. In verse 22, prophecy is held out as not for unbelievers, but for believers in verse 24. So just back up the lens a little bit and ask yourself, what do you want to have happen in the life of a non-believer? Well, I think what you want is verse 24 and 25. You want the conviction, the accountability, the secret of his heart being disclosed, falling on his face, worshiping God. Well, it's very clear that is connected to the prophecy, the the appropriate usage of prophecy uh, in the church. That seems to be our goal. The thing we don't want is the verse 23 thing of them saying, you're out of your minds. And the way that occurs is through an erroneous use of the gift of tongues. So it seems that what Paul is positing is not two scenarios, tongues or prophecy, but three scenarios. Number one is the proper use of tongues. Unbelievers actually could be nudged towards God through the proper use of tongues. You see this in Acts chapter 2, when the early church spoke publicly in tongues, Non-believers came, and it provided the early church a platform from which to preach. Peter preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost in part because of the gift of tongues being used. Uh, number two, the second possibility, or the second thing, you know, number one, the, there's the proper use of tongues, but number two in verse 23 seems to be the improper use of tongues. That's when he says, all speak in tongues in a real out-of-order kind of way. So, he says, look, they're, they're going to think that you're out of your minds. Which, by the way, on the day of Pentecost, both responses were given. Some thought you're out of your mind. Some were nudged towards God. And number three, there is the dynamic and gifted church where prophecy is happening in a, in a right and biblical way. And he says that person, when, it, when he experiences that, he is convicted by all. So he goes on to say in verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, and uh, we don't know 
when he's talking about, whether it's a large or small gathering, public or private, or house or synagogue. So it does make this next section a little difficult to understand, but this is just in general when the church gets together. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, this does not actually, if you look at the whole context, seem to be a compliment from Paul. It, at the very least, he's just stating a fact, not giving a template. You know, whenever a church service happens, everyone should have a solo, everyone should have a sermon, everyone should have a prophetic utterance, everyone should speak in tongues, and everyone should have an interpretation. seems clear that he's not saying that that should be but it does seem that he's kind of rebuking them for that. You know, this is what happens in Corinth. He says, look, let all things be done for building up. Their first big mistake, it seems, in their public gatherings is that they just, everybody had to have the attention. You know, they, they just didn't fit with each other. They took the, if you got the gift, flaunt the gift approach. And they all wanted to do everything in the body rather than to complement one another. He says, if any speak in a tongue, verse 27, there, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So, their second big error was that, you know, number one, they all had to do stuff. So they were kind of hogging the time. But number two, they misused the gift of tongues. They were all doing it. And Paul, so Paul says, you know, there should be two or three if there's interpretation. Then he says, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. And let, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So another error is that they misused the gift of prophecy. So he tells them, look, here's a guide. Have two or three, measure it up against scripture. Let it be one at a time. You know, not interrupting each other, but one at a time. And then he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, obviously, these are controversial verses from Paul. Uh, one of the things I can say in response to the understandable controversy from some of these statements would be that we must remember that the Corinthians did seem to have an issue in their church. Some of their women were out of order, it seems. Paul had to encourage submission. Uh, some of their women were the distinct leaders in their families rather than their husbands, so there was a backwards order in the home. And some of their women were argumentative, it seems, during their church services. They were speaking in church. Some people think that there was like a talking back kind of thing, or perhaps even a interrupting the service to talk to their husband on the other side of the room uh, possibility. It's hard to know exactly what Paul is applying these words to there in Corinth. So 
when things are unclear in Scripture, we have to go to what is clear. And the Bible does go to great lengths to incorporate women into ministry. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4, Paul talks about in the church a woman praying or prophesying. So that's the idea. Paul asks the hypothetical question in chapter 14, verse 1, or we have a hypothetical question from 14, verse 1, about desiring the gift of prophecy. So there, there, you would expect that many women would have that gift. Again, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4, a woman praying publicly. Titus chapter 2, a woman teaching. You know, other women, but, but teaching in the body of Christ. Serving, Romans 16, verse 1, Phoebe was a servant or a deacon of the church. So it seems that women can share testimony publicly, lead worship, be in forms of leadership in the church, but cannot be, of course, the teacher, pastor, the elder pastor, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 to 14. But here, it really is difficult to know exactly what Paul is alluding to. It may have been his way of diffusing an argumentative spirit that had come into the Corinthian church and that some of the married women in the church were engaging in. And so he just said, look, the husbands need to get involved. Uh, the, this, there are some women in the church in Corinth that are kind of out of control, and they are married. I've heard about it, and I want the husbands to be involved. So I think probably the larger principle that we would glean from this is that there needs to be, uh, especially in a married couple, a proper order uh, within that marriage. And that a married couple should be especially sensitive not to, you know, having a woman who is a gifted leader, is effective and gifted by God, but who is unsubmissive and really takes the lead in the family. And then that lead begins to really manifest itself in negative ways in the church, just kind of a pushing people around kind of spirit. Then he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So in other words, you just want to do this your own way, or are you going to listen to Apostle Paul here? If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Uh, so this is Paul's way of saying, look, get the gifts, but use them according to what I have just taught you. Uh, look, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said that we can go to the Father and the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So ask for spiritual gifts and then seek for opportunities to use those gifts in your local church. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.